If you have your Bibles, church family, go ahead and turn to Psalm 78. That's where we will be uh, this morning. Uh, while you're turning there, let me, uh, let me ask you a question. What is something maybe your family uh, has, I don't know, but what is something your family has unexpectedly found great happiness in, great joy, something you didn't expect would happen, and then suddenly there is great joy in your family, a shared excitement about this thing. Let me, let me give you an example. Uh, our family, um, much to my surprise, has turned into a group of ornithologists. And some, yeah, birds, yeah, birds. We watch birds, right? And so my wife has uh, taken our front porch area and our front yard and the tree and stuff in our yard and put all of these different kind of bird feeders out there, right? And so we have the, the bird feeder that is specifically for like the little birds. And then we have the one that's like, it looks like a barn and the birds can go rest on it. And uh, it's too, the, the bar is too light for like the squirrels. And so it like shuts it off for the squirrels and they can't eat and they get mad. And uh, then we have like the hummingbird feeder and they're darting around fighting each other. We have like all of these things, right? And so we have taken to watching the birds, even the boys will every now and then will see them staring out the window watching the birds. They've started to gather together information on their favorites. It's not odd for us to be walking through the house and then suddenly hear Cade let out the call of a morning dove, right? You'd think there was a bird inside. No, it's just Cade. They've He's even figured out his favorites. It was, he informed me last week that it's not anymore, but, but used to be the Carolina chickadee was his favorite. Uh, and I think it's probably just because it's fun for a four-year-old to say Carolina chickadee. Uh, but they have their favorites. Uh, now, social media uh, being what it is, the internet being what it is, knowing that if you have a phone or a tablet or a computer or any kind of smart device, it's listening to you, um, and then it is giving you suggestions about what you should look at uh, uh, and doing different research on different things. I came across an article this week about birds, right? And a very specific bird that I saw the article and I went, wow, that's impressively on topic for me this week. Uh, it's about a bird called a Caspian tern, a Caspian turn has nothing to do with Chronicles of Narnia, if that's where your brain went when you heard the word Caspian. Caspian turn is a bird that uh, typically in the summer is very, very far north and kind of spread out all around the globe. Uh, you can find them up in, uh, they've been found as far north as kind of like the west northern coast of Alaska, uh, but a lot of them will settle in areas around the Baltic Sea. Now, researchers, they wanted to study the Caspian turn for a very specific reason because as smart as we are, um, we still don't know a whole lot about migration, right? Like we don't know like how it works and why they do things the way that they do them, right? We like to think of ourselves as smart and we can't figure out this simple thing about birds, right? So researchers wanted to study uh, migration and the Caspian turn has a fairly long one. So they decided to study the Caspian turn and they found out some pretty interesting things about these birds. So the Caspian turn, they studied them. They used GPS trackers and these sort of things to study these Caspian turns that were settling around the Baltic Sea. That's kind of Finland, Norway, that area, right? And they studied them and watched their migration patterns. And they found a couple things. One, 
One pretty interesting thing is that while they all started out in a very similar place, this group of kind of communal migrators, they didn't all end up in the same spot. They didn't end up getting to the same place. Some of these families ended up in uh, northern Africa, kind of in the Egypt area. Some of them ended up in kind of the, uh, the southern Spain, Mediterranean. They're coastal birds. They like to be on the ocean. Some of them even ended up as far as like sub-Saharan tropic Africa, right? So we're talking like, like Ghana in that area. They made it a long way south, almost to the equator. They didn't all end up in the same place. But there was another interesting thing that they found. You see, the migration, that's a pretty long way to go. If you're thinking like the north side of the Baltic Sea to sub-Saharan Africa, that's a long trip. It's a long trip for us, much less for a bird who has to fly there. And they found out something very specific, that the baby birds, the young birds, were unbelievably, absolutely, completely dependent upon their fathers to make the trip. It's an odd thing. Why the fathers were not really sure, but they had to stay close to those father birds. This was a matter of life and death. The research even just said it very plainly. The birds that strayed from their fathers died. Not the birds that strayed from their fathers had a hard time. The birds that strayed from their fathers died. It seems that even the birds know how serious this is because they found cases of birds who lost their fathers being fostered into other families so that those fathers could teach the younger birds how to go. This was a pretty incredible thing. They would follow them every single step of the way. No matter where they ended up, no matter what part of the world they settled in, they would follow the fathers all the way down. And they would get to their wintering spot where it was nice and warm, just like we do on spring break, right? And then they would live solo, and on the return trip, they wouldn't need them anymore. They had learned everything they needed from their fathers, and on the return trip, they would head home, but they would make every single stop just as their fathers had taught them on the way back. This is a pretty incredible thing to learn. I think probably you can connect the dots. I'm, I'm imagining you guys kind of see where we're going as we hear that story, as we talk about a new sermon series called So They Would Know, you understand that we're going to talk today about family. It's not new information to know or to hear that the Bible calls on families and parents to bear the primary responsibility of raising up the next generation. But knowing a thing and needing to be reminded of a thing are not the same. Just because I know something doesn't mean I don't often need to be reminded of something. How many of us have ever gotten busy or distracted or just plain tired and forgotten something that we need to know, forgotten something that we need to do? Parents, how many of us are vulnerable in here to admit that we have been or maybe even are currently in a season that has us busy, distracted, or just tired? Life gets us down. And in those moments, we need to be reminded of things that we already know. And so my hope today is to be an encouragement to families. And I want you to know that when I use the word families, I mean that in a way that refers to everyone in the room. Because there are a lot of different families that look a lot different right now. 
Maybe your family is several kids still in diapers. Maybe your family is you have some middle school and high schoolers. Maybe your family is you because you're a single college student. Maybe your family is full of empty nesters. There's a lot of different ways that families look. So I want us to hear that just because we're using the word families and parents, you might not describe yourself that way, that doesn't mean that what we hear today doesn't mean something for you. That said, I want to jump into our passage today in Psalm 78. I want to look at the first eight verses here and dig into what it means for us as we think about making sure the next generation knows who God is. Psalm 78, verse 1. Follow with me as we read these first eight verses. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that as we open it up, we, we allow you to take it and, and push the roots deep into our heart. God, show us through your spirit what you would have us know today. And we love you, and we thank you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Let's remember for just a moment what the Psalms are. The Psalms are, at their core, songs. They were written and designed to be sung by the congregation of Israel and the people that followed. Music is, is a unique gift from God, right? Music has a way of helping us remember things, of being reminded of things, and helping us even sometimes in ways that we can't really fully grasp, understand some things, they reminded Israel, the Psalms did, of God's greatness, of his praiseworthiness. They reminded them of his goodness, his unwavering love, and his faithfulness. They helped build trust in the people of Israel in God. And they helped Israel remain, uh, maintain a, a proper perspective on the world around them. I, I know a lot of you probably understand this. You, you get this. You're music lovers at heart. You might jump in the car after a long and stressful day and you need that 15 to 20 minute trip on the way home with just music turned up and the world disappears and you just allow yourself to let all of that slip away and regain a perspective on the world. Students, I know you all get this. You have that song, whatever that song might be. It's probably different for just about everybody in the room. But that song that you always turn to at the end of a stressful moment in your life. Life is crazy. You have that one song that you don't understand it. That song gets you. 
right? And so you just turn that song on and it it calms your heart down. Music is a gift from God and it is used to teach and to grow and remind us of things that God wants us to know. The Psalms did just that. This Psalm does just that. We're not 100% on when this Psalm was written, but we're pretty confident it was written in the period of the divided kingdom after David, Solomon as kings, and the kingdom divided into two. And in that season, possibly as early as just after King Rehoboam, the, the whole of Israel is in a little bit of turmoil. There are those who have fallen away, and Israel needs to be reminded of God's persistent and redeeming grace to his people. This psalm does this by walking through the history. There are a few psalms that while they are songs, they're also very historical. And this is the longest of the historical psalms. We read the first eight verses, but you could see just by flipping through that this one is pretty long. It's 72 verses long. You could see that the rest of this is a walking through the history of Israel and their interaction and their relationship with God. And if we're honest, it's not looking too good on Israel's side of it. There's a lot of rebellion and a lot of walking away. And so the first eight verses give us a call, a warning. The next verses, 9 through 72, give us the history of Israel and what Israel has constantly been doing. And they beg us to ask the question, How can we keep from doing that again? The writers of the Old Testament and the New Testament often walk through Israel's history in a hopes that we won't do the same thing. And so this psalm wants us to understand that there is a path in which we don't repeat the cycles that we see in the history of Israel. And that's what verses 1 through 8 are all about. About. So let's look at these for just a few moments, these verses, and break down what they think the answer to the question, how can we keep this from happening again, is. Look at verse 1. My people, hear my instruction. I like the way that this next couple of verses reads in the CSB. It says, listen to the words from my mouth. I will declare wise sayings. I will speak mysteries from the past. There is a very clear intention here from the author of this psalm to beg us to listen. He puts two things together that probably we would never put together. I will declare wise sayings, or the ESV says parables. I will speak mysteries from the past. Mysteries, things we don't know, things that aren't easily understood. And then he says this. Things we have heard and known and that our fathers have passed down to us. How in the world could something be both a mystery and a parable yet always be shared to us and have been told these things from the beginning? Why would the psalmist say it is a mystery? Also, you've been told about these things your entire life. Because the way that Israel is acting, they are acting as if they've never heard these things before. They've never heard these wonderful things about how good God is. They've been acting as if they have no idea who God is or what he has done for them. And they need to be reminded of these things. Parents, I know you understand this. You have told your children over and over and over and over to do something. 
and they have failed to do that thing and forgotten to do that thing over and over and over and over again. Right? And it makes you wonder, were you even listening the first time? Uh-huh. Are you listening now? Uh-huh. Are you going to do it? I don't know. And if we're honest, that's us too. That's not a trait of children alone. If the history of Israel has taught us anything, it is that man is a forgetful and fickle thing. We have a wonderful ability to be very selective in the things that we remember and when we remember them. Scripture makes it clear that man has a tendency to go our own way and choose our own path. We're not going to read all of it, but in your spare time, you might go through and read the rest of this psalm and watch how the psalmist walks very uh, succinctly through the history of Israel. God rescued you out of Egypt. He did miracles and sent plagues, and he brought you across dry land that once was an ocean. And then you got to the mountain and you got upset because life was a little bit hard. You were hungry. So you complained and said it was better to be in slavery than following this God. So he sent you bread from heaven. Ah, bread from heaven's pretty cool, God. But you know what I'd really like? A quail sandwich. Oh, you are a rebellious people. Yet God was gracious and gave them quail that would just show up in their camp. A miracle. Oh, but God, it's so hot and we're wandering around and we don't have a home. I literally just rescued you and you're still complaining. I gave you food, magic food, and you're complaining. It gives them a home and a land that is unconquerable because the people are giants. They conquered them, yet still they went their own way. Constantly, the people of Israel are needing to be rescued. God rescues them, and then once they are, they forget God, they forget who he is, and they go their own way again. Y'all, it's not just Israel. It's us. How easy is it for us when times are good to wander away from God? And then suddenly something difficult comes along and suddenly, God, where are you? Why aren't you fixing my problem? Why is this happening to me? Because we've forgotten the goodness of God. The psalmist is begging the people, begging them in these first three verses, please listen like you haven't listened before. Don't do the same thing you've done before. Don't forget who God is. Remember, you know these things. They've been shared with you. If we're going to stop this cycle of running from God, complaining against God when things are good or not going the way we want, if we want something better, how do we get there? And that's what the next four verses share. Look at verse 4. We will not hide them. The the things that our fathers have passed down, those things in verse 3 that we have heard and that we know, we will not hide those things from the children. But we will tell a future generation the praiseworthy acts of God. His might, 
the wondrous works he has performed. He has established a testimony or a witness in Jacob instead of a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. If we want to stop the cycle, if we want to stop being a people who run from God until things are not going our way and then remember who God is, if we want to be a people who are constantly bowing at the feet of God and saying, great are you, Lord, then it all revolves around one thing, teaching the next generation. Five times in these last four verses, it points us to why teaching is important. It says we will not hide them, those things that God has done from their children. It says we will tell a future generation. It says we will tell which commanded, he was commanded to teach to their children. It says that a future generation, children not even born, might know. It says that they were to rise and to tell their children. The directive is clear. One generation has to step up and tell the next generation how good and great our God is so that that generation might know it so deeply in their heart that they begin to share it with the generation after them and the generation after them and the generation after them. This is not a short-term solution. This is not a what's going to be best for us next year. It's what's going to be best for our children's, 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 children. One generation has to step up to the call to teach the next. The what we are to teach and the why we are to teach here are very, very clear. Look at what it says. We are to teach what? The praiseworthy acts of the Lord in verse 4. His might, the wondrous works he has performed... Verse 5, the testimony he has given in Jacob, the law he has commanded in Israel. We are to share in the one place where we find all of those things, the word of God. We find the witness of who God is, the praiseworthy acts of God, his great things, his might and his power and his commands, all given to us through the spirit and Holy Scripture. And it is our responsibility to raise up the next generation as a generation who knows the word. Not only is the what clear, but so is the why. Look what it says. Verse 6, so that a future generation, children yet to be born, might know, they will rise and tell their children, that they might put their confidence in God and not forget his works, but keep his commands. We are to raise up the next generation so that they would know God, so they would put their confidence in God and that they would obey God. This is the whole point. If we want a future generation to know God, to love God, trust God, and to follow God, then we have to tell them who he is, what he has done, and what he calls us to do. So we know it's just easy to know one reason why we don't often work to share with the next generation what God has done. We've already said it. It's because we are a people who often chooses to go our own way and do what is easiest for us. But there's another reason. There's another reason, and that is that it's hard. Yeah, but it's also that we don't always know what to do. 
We don't always know how to do it. And all the conversations I've had with parents over the 18 years of doing student ministry that I have, one of the most often expressed sentiments about discipling families is this. I don't know where to start. I don't know what to do at the beginning. I don't know where to go to do this. My hope, again, is to be an encouragement. My hope is to be an encouragement to you in this process. So let me start by saying this. Discipling your family is absolutely one of the hardest things you will ever do. I know that doesn't sound encouraging. But it is because of this next statement. Just because it's hard doesn't mean it has to be complicated. It doesn't have to be the most complicated thing you will ever do. Deuteronomy 6 lays out a pretty clear path in how these things are to get done. It tells us to do what, right? To repeat these things to your children, to talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Those sound like things that we do every single day. They sound like very normal things, that we are to disciple our kids in the normal run of our life. Discipling your family is not a seminary-level class that you have to be trained for 20 years and have a Ph.D. to do. God gave us all the tools that we need so that all of us have the ability and the power to do this. And it starts with His Spirit. This is something that we do as we walk along through the times and the moments of our life. On the road, in the car, at the dinner table, on the way to practice, these are the places where we disciple our families. And so what does that look like? To be an encouragement, I'm a pretty practical guy, and so to be an encouragement, I want to share with you in our remaining time five things that I think as families, whatever our families look like, five things that we need to have as tools in our tool belt in order to raise up the next generation so that they would know. Five things that I think all of us should be doing with our families. Number one, read God's word together. Read God's word together. Psalm 78 makes it very clear that if we're going to know God, trust God, and obey God, if we're going to lead the next generation to do the same, it starts by being in the word. Asaph, in encouraging the people of Israel to remember and stick close to God, shared with them the history of Israel. He dug into their past and gave them what God has done. We have here what God has done for us. We have here the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that changes hearts and lives. It is our responsibility to share this. I love that verse 5 uses the word testimony or witness. We have the same testimony here. We have the power of Christ who has changed our lives, and we have the words and the work that God has given us. Let's share that with our families. We have to be reading God's word together. Second thing I think we need to be doing as families, we need to be praying God's word together. I know that sounds a little bit different. But we need to be praying. The Bible is full of promises of God. It is full of the character and nature and work of God. And we need to be praying, God, this is the promise you've given me. Please let me trust you in that. Please let me raise my family in that same trust. 
We need to be a praying people. I love that one of the things that we so often see the disciples ask Jesus, often enough that they thought it was important enough to share when they wrote the Gospels, is they often asked him, can you teach us how to pray? Prayer is a taught and learned thing, and we need to be teaching our kids how to pray. We need to raise up the next generation so that they know how to communicate with God. We need to read God's word together. We need to pray together. Number three, we need to be connected to biblical community together. We need to remember that discipling our families is not something that we do alone. So one of the most dangerous things that we can do in this life is to assume that we're in it by ourselves. And we don't have other people around us to be there with us. The times in my life when I've gotten myself in some of the most trouble are the times in my life when I've assumed that nobody else knows what I'm going through. Nobody gets it. Nobody's ever done this before. There's nobody out there that can help me because I'm the only one that's done this. I've forgotten the community of God that he has given to us. Remember, what is this? It's a song. It was meant to be sung just as we have already sang songs together and as we will continue to sing songs this morning. This was a song meant to be sung in the congregation. Discipleship was not a matter that they did alone. It was a matter for the people to do together. We are in this together and we have to learn to lean on each other. It's one of the greatest hopes that I have for my two boys is that I am not the only voice that speaks discipleship into their lives. That they would be surrounded by other leaders in this church who would also speak the gospel into their lives. Other men that as they grow up, they learn to trust and lean on and say, I need some help. Not just me, I want that for me. Clearly, I want them to be able to trust me and come to me, but I don't want mine to be the only voice they turn to. I want them to turn to God. I want them to turn to me. And then I want them to look to the church and say, there are other people who love me, who care about me, and want what is good for me. We are in this together. Read God's word. Pray God's word. Be connected to biblical community. Number four, this is where it starts to get a little bit challenging, and you might start going, oh, okay, how do I do that? Number four, having biblical conversations at home. We want you to take what you learn here. Take what you learn in the sermon. Take what is learned in life group and carry it home. We want you to be around the word together and have those difficult conversations when you read a passage of scripture that doesn't make a whole lot of sense and your kids say, what does that mean? And you go, ah, I don't know. You say, I don't know, but let's find out together. We want those biblical conversations happening there. If there's wisdom in these passages today, it's that there's greater impact on the next generations when church conversations happen here and when church conversations happen outside of these walls as well. Our hope is to do that as best we can, to share parent resources through newsletters and social media posts that allow you to take what they're learning and ask those questions on Sunday afternoon or Monday evening or Thursday night. Having biblical conversations at home. And here's the fun one. Number five. I think it's very important that families experience joy together. Families need time to just have fun. 
Families need time to see that the God that we serve is a creative God who wants us to enjoy the world that he has created. And he wants us to do that, experience the beauty and laughter and excitement of the world around us as a family. One of the values in our student ministry, all right, and and let me explain when I say this, one of the values in our student ministry is fun. And it's not fun for fun's sake. It doesn't just mean that we only want to be about the excitement and the hype of things. We can't and we don't want to try and compete with the world when it comes to those things. But we know that in moments that are fun, memories are made. And when memories are made, the things that we learn take a deeper root in our heart and in our mind. That's why we do a lot of the things that we do. That's why we go to camp. Because at camp, the deep teaching of Scripture, both from a stage and in a small group, is wrapped up in the excitement of the lake and the blob and the excitement of uh, crazy games at lunch and the excitement of smash ball and bazooka ball and zip lining. All of those incredible experiences surround the teaching of God's word and those memories are taken to a deeper place in our heart. It's fun. When families create memories together, when they experience joy together, it makes everything that we do, those conversations that we're having in the car, those dinner table moments, the reading God's word in the evening together, it takes all of those things and settles them in a deeper, more memorable place in our heart. Families need to be experiencing joy together. Now, I know that might sound like a lot, a little bit of a drinking from a fire hose thing, but remember what Deuteronomy said, that these are things that you can do with that heart that does them on the way as you rise up, as you lie down, as you drive down the road, as you sit at the dinner table. What we're doing is shifting our mindset to stop along the way in all the things that we do. Take moments that would otherwise be mundane and normal and turn them into gospel moments. We read our Bibles and pray together as a family as our evenings are winding down, as we go to church and make that a priority and let that become a point of family rest for us in the week. We take what we learn at church and we carry it into the home and we have conversations in the car. A Thursday night game of Mario Party is what it's become for us. It becomes a moment of joy for a family. What this ultimately is, if we want to take it down to brass tacks, so to speak, it's five to ten minutes a day of being intentional about the way you raise up your family, building a heart that is completely dependent upon Jesus Christ. We have to trust him. We have to trust the power of the Spirit. And we have to put in the work to raise up the next generation. The English poet Samuel Coleridge, uh, there's a story told that goes this way, that he was talking with a man who didn't believe uh, that children should have any sort of religious education or instruction at all. He said that we should leave them alone, that a child's mind should be allowed to be free from any prejudice in any direction so that when he became older, he would be permitted to choose his religious opinions for himself. Leave them alone, he said. Let them figure it out on their own. Coleridge said nothing, 
uh, about this. But after a little while, he asked the visitor to his house if he would like to see his garden. The man said he would. And Collards took him out of his house and into his garden in the back, where there were only weeds growing everywhere. The man looked at Coleridge in surprise and said, this is not a garden. There are nothing here but weeds. Well, you see, Coleridge answered, I did not wish to infringe upon the liberty of the garden in any way. I was just giving the garden a chance to express itself and choose its own production. It's a trick, isn't it? It's not about having the best plan, the only strategy. It's not about your power. It's not about my power. None of those have the ability to change a heart. It's the power of the Spirit, the power of the gospel, and a trust that when we are intentional about raising children in the gospel, God will do the work. So we have to put in the time. And that's why I want to be very clear. It's never too late. It's never too early to start on this road. Wherever you are, whatever path you have taken, whatever your family looks like, any of those places that we've mentioned before, it's not too early and it's not too late. Because this path starts by trusting in Christ by believing the gospel and then by doing something. So maybe today your call to action, maybe your call to obedience is to say, I will believe what Jesus tells me in his word. I'm going to tell the next generation, I'm going to tell people about the mighty acts of God, of his goodness. I'm going to read his word and I'm going to know these things and believe them for myself. That these were not just meant for Israel, but that this song of trust and the song of remembrance, it was meant for me. Maybe your step is to sit down and talk through with your spouse about what it would look like to begin to put these things into action for your children. Maybe that looks like you committing to be a part of these things on a regular, weekly basis, starting today. Maybe it looks like you stepping into a place where you can serve because the church steps alongside families to help them raise up children to know, trust, and obey God. That's what we do in our children's ministry, in our student ministry. So maybe your call is to step alongside families and serve. What I can't tell you is exactly how God is calling you to put these things into practice. I can't tell you that God has to work in your heart. I can give you what God has called us to do, but you have to allow God to work in your heart. What I can say is that whenever God gives to us his word and whenever we hear it, there is a call to respond. There's a call to do something. So my hope is that whatever God is laying on your heart, you would be bold, bold enough to say, God, today I'm going to be obedient and I'm going to do that. As we have a time of response, the altar here will be open. Maybe you need to come and pray for your family. Maybe you need to come and pray for families around you. Maybe you need to come and pray for a spouse or your children. Maybe you just need to get along with God and say, God, I'm dealing with something. And I see that I haven't been following you. I am 
as fickle and forgetful as Israel, and I need your forgiveness. This altar is here. You can come do that. You can come pray. If you need somebody to pray with you, I'm going to be right over here in this first row. You can come pray with me. I'll pray with you. If you need to respond, if you need to say, Jesus, today I need you. I have been fickle and I have wandered away, but today I need you. And I want to know what it looks like to respond to Christ and say, I want that life. I want that goodness and that greatness of God to be evident in my heart. Come talk to me. We'll pray together. Listen to God. Don't wait. Whatever he's calling you to, commit yourself to it today. Will you stand as we pray? Father, your call on our hearts and our life is great. To raise up a next generation who knows you, who follows you, who loves you, God, who is committed to obey you. It's easy to say. It's not always easy to do. And God, I know that as parents, as families, we sometimes forget. God, that can produce a lot of shame or guilt. God, I pray in this moment that that your spirit would wash that away. and Instead, in its place, it would leave a love and an obedience to you. God, a, a remembrance that your grace is never ending. No matter how many times Israel failed, your grace was persistent and bigger. And you always walked with them. God, I pray that for those in here who need to respond, that this moment would be one where they would respond. God, if they need to pray, that they would come pray. God, if they need to allow you to work in their heart and sit and listen to the words as they commit their hearts again to you, God, that they would do that. God, that we would together continue to raise up the next generation to know you and love you. Father, we thank you for your word. It's in your name we pray.